0: It was hard, and we succeeded. This is a quote from David Sachs, entrepreneur, investor, and an early PayPal employee, and I think it sums up the whole PayPal story really well. PayPal is a unique and pivotal company in our wonderful, colourful tech history. Its founders alone include some of the most successful and prolific engineers, entrepreneurs, and investors, from Elon Musk to Peter Thiel and Max Levchin. But the story of PayPal traditionally only tells the PayPal mafia story and not the real, true, gritty story of a group of people, many immigrants and lots of women who helped shape the company and each other during one of the most critical times in tech history. My guest today is Jimmy Sony, author of The Founders, The Story of PayPal and The Entrepreneurs Who Shaped Silicon Valley. And he does what many others haven't. Over five years, he sought out the very people who were there in the early days – and not just the founders and the big-name early employees, but all of those who shaped it and made PayPal what it is. He goes back in time to the very inception, when Elon was just a young man still showering at the local YMCA, and Max Levchin was seeking relief from a very hot day by heading to a lecture given by Peter Thiel in a hall gifted with Aircon. There are so many twists and turns and a huge sprinkling of serendipity, hard work and genius teams that made PayPal what it was. And that's what Jimmy and I dig deep into. In this interview, which I know you will really enjoy, is a fascinating story. You're listening to the Daniel Union podcast where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. And here is my conversation with Jimmy Sony. Jimmy, thank you so much for joining me today. I absolutely love your book about the PayPal founders, which is very well named The Founders. My first question to you is, how the hell did you get Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, Max Levchin, Reid Hoffman, and everyone else involved to agree to do the book? Because these people aren't easy to get hold of, are they?
1: Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> it's a great question, actually. Uh, no one's asked me that yet. Um, so it, it is funny, right? I think that the biggest thing that one might take away from it is... Th- there's, there's some real advantages to having very little idea what you're doing, right? Um, because I was not someone who covered these people or wrote about them. You know, this is the first time in my writing where I've worked with subjects who are alive. Like my subjects are all historical figures. And so I had written a book about a mathematician and engineer named Claude Shannon. And I had looked at the place that he worked, Bell Labs, which was this crazy collection of talent. And I just started like thinking and going down Wikipedia rabbit holes about other collections of talent. I came to PayPal and I had a friend who, Ryan Holiday, who had written a book where he'd interviewed Peter. And I somewhat, I mean, this is this is the, the truth. I think it's the first time I've actually speak, spoken about it. I, I sort of did it on a lark. I said, you know, Ryan, I think there might be a book in the PayPal years. Could you, you know, maybe make an introduction to Peter? Let's see if I could get the rock rolling down the hill. And Ryan was really gracious he made that introduction and i i prepared like crazy and and started to understand the dimensions of the story but i was kind of casting a line before i knew if something would happen and so i had you know the chance to to sit down with peter and my my basic pitch is i said look bell labs was this incredible collection of talent xerox park fairchild semiconductor general magic and I feel like there's a lot of room to explore the PayPal years, particularly because the late 1990s internet was just such a crazy environment and so much being built and created. And I, I think that there's a wider story here than is understood from some of the retellings later. And and then I, I sort of added this line. I said, I, it's like it's like Lord of the Rings, but set in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and he he laughed. And, you know, he actually told me, he said, you know, for a while, I guess he had thought about doing a version of this, this story himself. And I had decided against it for various reasons, and I think a lot of what he wanted to explore was covered in zero to one in the form of some broader principles and, and essays. I basically, he said, sure, I'll you know you could do this, go go ahead. And I said, well, I'll need time from you, but also would you mind making just a few introductions? He was he was really gracious. He introduced me to Max Levchin, his co-founder at what was then called Fieldlink, later Confinity, and and later PayPal, and he made some introductions to others as well. And from there, you know, it's oh I, I just realized like I haven't actually thought about this in, in a few years because that was four and a half, five years ago. From there, what I would do is I would daisy chain introductions. And so, you know, I, I would never really ask the same person for too much because these people have enormous demands on their time. Like they don't, they don't, you know, me using them as a switchboard operator is not a good use of their time. And so for with with Max, for example, there were a couple of people that he mentioned. Uh, and I think I had asked him for like one introduction. And then with someone else, maybe they mentioned somebody and I asked for an introduction. And then I, I supplemented that with just hundreds of cold emails. So I'll, I'll give you an example of what I did. And hopefully this isn't going into too much depth, but for the sake of, of understanding the process, you know, at various points, people share documents from these years and I would get rosters, like company rosters or company birthday lists. And so what I did to make sure that I was being judicious is I went through and I would I do sort of three kinds of highlights, like green, I've talked to them, yellow, I've reached out to them, red, I reached out to them and they said, no. And then with everyone that was sort of a yellow, I'd reach out a couple of times to try to get, to try to talk to them. And I just went down the line and it it didn't matter what role they were in. It didn't matter what role they played in the company. I just tried to reach out to as many people as I could. And, you know, like cold emails are surprisingly effective. (laughs) Um, Like it actually works and it gives you a much, uh, a much richer, a set of people who are going to be a part of the story. With people who are high high profile, obviously you have to be a little bit more careful and you have to describe what you're trying to do. It helped that uh, in some ways that I wasn't like a traditional writer about these people, meaning I don't cover them. I, I actually came into this story kind of backwards, right? I think they thought, oh, how interesting that somebody wants to write history, but while we are still alive to tell it and shape it. And so I was able to then get, you know, the the necessary interviews and sit downs. And I, you know, let me add one other thing, which is admittedly, like, I'm writing about something that happened 20 years ago. And at this point, in their lives, this is like a distant, distant, distant memory. You know, it's actually funny. They gave me a little bit of grief about it at the beginning. Almost every person I interviewed who is in Silicon Valley today who works there and is some kind of, you know, big figure would say things like, huh, ah, how curious that you're interested in these old stories, right? Like it's almost like <laughs> taking a dig and I'm like, oh, man. Uh, but then I would say, look, I think this old story still casts really long. It has a long arc and it's not over. And they they got it, I think. and the other The other piece of it that's important is I wasn't trying to tell a story of one person. I was trying to tell a story of several hundred. And they they knew that 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 one figure wasn't going to tower above the others, that this was actually this really interesting collection of people. And I think that probably made it a little easier. but the the honest, short answer to your question is uh, luck and shoe leather and a lot of cold emails.
0: (laughs) I didn't actually realize any of that. I didn't know that you reached out to Peter first. I would have thought he'd have been the hardest. So it's quite good that you had um, an inroad there. Um, Here's the the thing though.
1: I actually, I actually was, I told a friend the other day that I'll share it for you. I was waiting for someone to say no. Like I was really actually anticipating that at some point somebody would say like, nah, I don't want to do this. And they'd be a significant enough figure that if they weren't interviewed, it would be a problem. And so It was interesting to me that actually that it happened at all. I did it almost entirely on a lark.
0: But what's also interesting is the people that you might have thought have said no were the ones that probably said yes first, because I always find that once you get certain people on board, that's it, you're, you're free rolling. But also the other thing about writing this book is I would imagine some of them are nervous because books have come out in the past and don't always tell the full truth. So the fact that you went to so, I, I know you did like 270 interviews over five years. It was really thorough. I know Musk, um, Elon Musk said on Twitter the other day that you asked really good questions as well. And I thought, well, I hope you update your LinkedIn with that, that little number because yeah. that's the best compliment you can get.
1: You know, um, it, it, I appreciate it. And, and I appreciated his, his, uh, his comments as well. You know, they meant a lot because I, I did pour myself into this. Uh, over the course of a very long period, and I, I suppose you know it's it's always hard to sort of look at your own work and like why why like why obsess over this, right? Like my friends definitely got frustrated and would would say things like, "You know, you can dial it back a bit. and and i I really love the work of people like Robert Caro. I really love the work of people like Candace Millard. And when they write histories, they they turn over every page and they read everything they can, and they interview other historians. Who write about this period? So this is going to sound a little funny, but I'd always ask myself, like, I, I, (laughs) I would always sort of like have this anxiety, like a serious imposter syndrome. And I was able to say to myself, like, you know, somebody else really should be doing this project. Like this project is not my project; it's someone else's. And then I would say to myself, like, if Robert Caro were attacking the PayPal story, what would he do? and the answer is he would simply get crazily obsessed and try to find every scrap of paper and try to find every single nugget and try to understand the story from all dimensions and so i would just wake up every day and kind of do what someone else who was more qualified would do would do if that's, if that's it's like an imitation right so it's learning by imitation and so like a great example is i was given several gigabytes of email from this period and Honestly, I just would print out hundreds of pages and I set like a target number of pages to read every single day of sometimes the most banal, uninteresting stuff, but occasionally like the most interesting revelations from the development of the company. I just had a sense that if you're going to do this, why not go back to the internet archives and find every single old page you can of the, the websites that led to this company? why not contact some random person who's listed on a PowerPoint to see why they made the decision they did? I contacted investors who passed on investing in PayPal just to see why they passed, right? Mm. Or just to see what, what led them a little bit. And not all of those stories made it into the book, but my view was, I just I felt like okay if you're gonna do this you you have to really dive in and it's not because the other the other thing is they dove in when they created the company this was their entire lives for a period of years it felt like it was some sort of like a, almost like an injustice to the story if you don't. Attack it with that same sort of rigor, and I and I, look, I'm glad to see that it that sh- shines through. I hope it does. And the other piece is, as w- if you do the history the right way, you're also leaving clues for future historians, right? And so you're leaving clues for the person who comes at the story thirty years, for fifty years from now, and decides to revisit it. And that's why, like, my endnotes are such a big part of the book. Is I want to leave a little little trail in case someone else wants to explore this period or do something with it. Um, so all of that now. None of that is like I didn't have any kind of grand plan I like I hope I've conveyed I I made it up as I went along but as soon as I had some of the key players on board, I really thought okay let's go back and really understand what the late 1990s internet was like.
0: I honestly, I think you've put such a rich amount of um, story in there. It's not like it's not a light read, and it's it, but it's very rich in all the different kind of stories and all the different players. And that's one thing I really wanted to to make a point about, even from the front cover. You include some of the women from the early days. And that is so st- like an absolute stark contrast to what most of us have seen in, in traditional press when it's always called the PayPal mafia and it's all these men in suits. And I, I really appreciate that you did that because there's a lot of different people that um, would admittedly be part of this whole PayPal story, but won't have been interviewed. And I've heard you say before that some of the people you interviewed, they're like, no one's ever asked us, like never, no one's ever contacted us, which is incredible, really. Um, So thank you for writing such a rich um, history of this time, which was an incredible time. I actually reached out to Camilla, who's somebody that worked on the early PayPal team. He was in charge of looking at anti-fraud. And he talks about how many near-death experiences the company had. Um, So I I want to dig deep into those in a minute. But before we get to that, I just want to, because you've done such a great job with the history, I want you, if you can, to paint a picture of... I know they're not the main characters, but for me, the people that kind of stand out the most who were instrumental in setting up both Confinity and X.com is obviously Elon, Peter and Max. Could you give a little background on each of those just so people get an understanding of what they were like at this time?
1: Sure. It's my it's one of the the joys of writing this project is that I was able to basically ignore everything that happened in their illustrious lives after 2003 uh, in some way. So there are three figures who form the the opening sequence of the of the book uh, and they are I assume or I imagine are going to be familiar to your listeners they are Elon Musk, Peter Thiel and Max Levchin and I'll just go sort of in in roughly that order when you meet Elon at at the beginning of my book you know he is actually a a college student who has decided to take an internship at a bank in Canada called Scotiabank I began there because it's the first place that he's exposed to to the financial services sector. And he's not there because he's actually interested in finance. He's there because the person that he's working for is this brainiac scientist meets political person named Dr. Peter Nicholson. And he read about him in the newspaper. He and his brother did a lot of cold emails themselves in the day or cold phone calls, as it were. And he got a meeting with him. And Dr. Nicholson was impressed by the brothers and offers them a spot uh, on the, uh, an internship on the shebang team. And Elon takes it Uh, across the different time. uh, Peter Thiel has decided that he's going to become an investor. And at first he's a global macro investor, but make some small bets on startups, which are the mid and late 1990s, all the rage. And He's making you know bets here and bets there and finding and meeting founders and going to events. And at a class he's teaching at Stanford, he meets the third sort of big figure at the early part of the story. He meets this fresh out of University of Illinois graduate named Max Levchin. They meet and have breakfast, and Max pitches him on a few ideas. Um, Max has had some, he's had he's he's sort of cut his startup teeth during his university years. He built a few companies. Most were failures. One. Had a small, small, small exit, and it gives him enough breathing room to come to Silicon Valley, which is this place that's a buzz with that kind of talent. Young, engineering oriented, really ambitious. He is is living quite modestly when he meets Peter, uh, but Peter sees something in Max. Invests a hundred thousand dollars in the form of a bridge loan, actually, uh, which had an interest rate funny enough. I found the interest rate in the uh, the s one document of the company when they went when they filed to go public. I wonder if I actually wonder if Max ever had to pay interest. That's funny. Um, you should find out yeah. yeah. so so he invests. he makes this investment. and max uh, they they go through one CEO transition, and Max realizes, you know, Peter brings to the table a lot of the knowledge that Max doesn't about business and about hiring and about, I would say, actually an intuition about people and recruiting and about how to tell the company's narrative. What Max wants to do is write code. He wants to build the company's products and write code. And so he brings Peter on to be CEO. And, you know, it's important for your listeners. It's, you know, I tried to, like, I had to do this for myself. It's really hard to divorce the people they are today from the people they were back then. When Elon begins X.com, he has had one startup success. It's with Zip2, he which sold the Compact computer. So he has some funds, but he feels like he hasn't achieved in technology what he set out to achieve. Like he feels like the internet just has so much more potential and he wants to keep doing things on the internet. You know, Peter got turned down for a Supreme Court clerkship, became an investor, and you know, he hasn't like really broken through. He's done some things, you know, he's had some success academically. Um, But he's sort of figuring himself out still. And Max Levchin is fresh out of college. Like this is not, these are not people who had it all figured out the way I think some of us uh, would imagine they do today. I wanted to write about the period where they were figuring it out. Uh, And so that's where the story begins.
0: It's really fascinating. And this is why I do these interviews, actually, because I'm really interested in the backstories. You know, there's a lot to be said about success and how it happens, but no one really goes that far back. So I really I really enjoyed that part of the book. And um, one of the things that I thought was unusual, and I know Elon has talked before about showering at a YMCA. But when you talk about that time when he was building Zip2 and he slept in the office, which I think has stayed with him, and he showered at the YMCA... Um, he also had a scholarship and, and was having financial aid at Stanford, which something that he was concerned about losing when he then deferred his degree to start the business. And I just wonder, like, I don't think people have that understanding of him, that he wasn't always in the money. I know it was within a very short period of time, Zip2 was a huge success and they sold it. And he netted $22 million um, sale, for, you know, from the sale. But really, it hadn't been that much earlier where he didn't have much money and, you know, what's also interesting is is how many immigrants kind of came together. And and you said earlier about Xerox Park and Bell Labs and some of these kind of um, places where groups of people came together. And it seems like with this, Confinity and we had a group of people come together who were super smart. You know, like uh, I think most of us know that Elon Musk and Max Levchin and Peter Thiel are smart, but... I don't think we understand how smart. And these people came together at a time when the internet was just about to fly. Of course, not long later, it, it then crashed. But can you tell me about... The, the, so they grew the companies at the same time. I think it was just a sure, few... I, go on, sorry. Yeah,
1: just on the on the point about the graduate school thing, because I think it's, it's actually important and I'm glad you picked up on it. This is actually an underappreciated element of this early part of Elon's life. I went back and I found this... Um, this interview that he gave with the University of Pennsylvania Gazette or something. And he was talking about his first startup success. It's kind of remarkable because, you know, we, we think of him today as this like huge risk taker in business who is, who is placing these like world historic bets on some of the things that he is working on, whether that is satellite technology, space logistics, electric vehicles, infrastructure, whatever it might be. Um, you know, he was conflicted back in back in his at his start about setting aside a Stanford Graduate School acceptance along with financial aid to go and start an internet company. It was a real risk, and it was a real moment of what do I do? How do I do the things that I want to do in the world? You know, he had applied and been admitted to a very prestigious program, and again, this is Stanford University. Is, he would have gotten a PhD and sets it aside to go pursue a startup at a time when the internet is growing, but. What I don't want people to think is, oh, this was some willy-nilly risk, you know, it just it no, this was actually from what I can gather and from discussions with other people who knew him at the time. This was a real decision. It was wow, I've I may have to give this up to do this other thing and create a dot-com, but there's some real risk of failure here, and I don't have any money. I appreciate that you picked up on it because it's super important and it's the kind of thing that. You know, it's so hard to pay attention to when obviously his life today looks markedly different, but there was real risk here and a real sort of uh, like, okay, let's, let's see what happens. And in fact, he's told by the person at Stanford, like, yeah, all right, but you see, well, I bet we'll see you in a few months, right. Or something Mm -hmm. to that effect. And so he does, he takes the plunge and he, he, but he wrestles with it. It's not an easy decision. Uh, He is not someone who has money. I would say the other thing I wanted to make sure that I underline in what you said, because I'm glad to be able to have a chance to talk about it is the majority of the founders of X.com and Confinity are are all immigrants. Peter is born in Germany. Elon is born in South Africa. Max Levchin is born in the Ukraine. And others on their team similarly do not come from the United States. And there is a a powerful tradition of this within Silicon Valley, but I think sometimes we don't celebrate it enough. That it is this place that actually invites these people in, encourages them to create things. And I, I say this obviously is like a cards on the table. I'm an immigrant myself. Uh, my parents are immigrants. We moved to the United States when I was five. There is something about that that is powerful. And and in the end of the book, David Sachs does say he said, you know, his quote to me about it was. Immigrating is the ultimate entrepreneurial act. You know, you choose to leave everything behind and start entirely anew. And I thought there was some real power in that. There's something there that is worth celebrating. And obviously you have a broad audience that's from around the world, but there is something about leaving one's roots, going to a new place and beginning that that is sort of, there. there's a echo there in what entrepreneurship is as well.
0: Absolutely. I talk about this a lot on the podcast actually. And I think that there is such a strong link I mean, you could literally do a whole podcast on immigrants that have become entrepreneurs, and and so many traits that you know had to be kind of built up as a result of moving, like you said, and leaving everything behind. So I'm glad you I'm glad you clarified there. And I think with Elon, it's very easy to kind of look at what he's achieved and actually not go as far back, even to his time in South Africa, which I think you know when you learn more about it, it's quite. It wasn't he didn't have the easiest time, shall we say. But so he he did um, do zip two and he did uh, very well and got 22 million out of it. But what's another interesting fact is I think it was only a month later that he started x.com. He didn't just sit there, you know, in his twenties and think, well, I've made it. He he cracked on straight away. But in terms of the the two companies are started within a few months of each other and they're working at a frenetic speed can you tell me a bit about the culture of kind of both startups at that time and how how each company kind of evolved before they kind of met in the middle
1: Yeah this is the this is this period is uh, most of 1999 and early 2000 is when the companies are coming into being and You know, I hope I described it vividly, but I'm not sure anyone could accurately capture just how intense and insane this period was. They are, you know, there are real sort of internal fights about what x.com should be. There's some wrangling within Confinity about what they should be. And to give you a bit of back, to give your listeners a bit of background, x.com sets out to be like the world's financial services superstore. So if there's anything you need to do with money, you should be able to do it at x.com. Confinity starts out, with the ambition of becoming what one person referred to as like the dominant player in the palm economy, which is the palm pilot economy, and the goal is we can make infrared money beaming from the palm pilot's infrared ports into like a big thing, right? This is going to be the thing that like changes the world. And um, both ideas have their have their strengths and their deficits, but where both companies find themselves drawn to is the one place their products actually start to take off, which is person to person emailing money in a very simple way and where this really takes root is the auction digital auction website ebay.com and so ebay auction buyers and sellers like have to figure out payments on their own because this the company never built like a standardized payment system in place so they're sending checks and they're using western union and they're you know going to their bank and doing wire transfers and into that chaos steps these two companies who have built a fairly lightweight mechanism to transfer money from one email address to another, meaning I could enter your email address in and send you $10. This doesn't seem like a big deal to us, right? Like, but you have, to, you have to go back and remember, most people don't have their finances online at this time people have only just gotten email addresses. The internet is still largely through, done through dial-up modems. Like this is not the age that we live in where like my phone could do pretty much everything in my life better than I could, right? Um, and so there's a way in which these companies are at the vanguard of digital payments. They're not the only players in the space, but what, they, what happens is they, they do a few things to goose their growth on eBay, including giving away bonuses. Now, the thing about giving away free money is anytime you give away free money, right, you're going to attract a lot of people. And so in late 1999 and early 2000, X.com and Confinity are growing at an unbelievable pace, uh, compounding percentage points every day, not every month, every day. And the growth is exponential. And that's not like boastful adjective. It's actually exponential in the mathematical sense, uh, where they're growing at many, many orders of magnitude every day. The problem is neither company actually expected to grow quite that fast, quite that quickly. And so they have this challenge of all of a sudden they have thousands, then tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of customers. And they haven't really built up kind of the infrastructure or ecosystem to service all of their various needs and issues. But the fast growth happens in late 1999 and it happens pretty soon after both products launch. It's unexpected, it's a whirlwind. And it also leads to a contest. There's a contest between the two companies to see who's going to win the eBay payments race. And uh, one of my favorite things that Elon said is he, he called it the widget wars because he said, you know, uh, we'd, x.com would put a widget up on eBay and figure out something. Like the next moment, Confinity would have a better widget. And so then I'd say like, we need a better widget. And, and it was this very clear, like weeks long fight to try to win market share on eBay. It is many of these early technologists First, particularly people who are sort of uh, fresh arrivals, meaning not the founders specifically, it's their first experience of having something really take off. Um, you know, a lot of them have written code and done projects and done some things, but n- you, no one has really had hundreds of thousands and, and millions of users and transactions uh, until this point. So they're they're very much making it up as as they go along.
0: I think that was part of, and I think it's true for many startups, that naivety plays a role in, in how these things work, I mean, success usually comes because you have a fantastic idea, you get a brilliant team together and and you you don't necessarily know the outcomes. I mean, for them, there were so many issues that they hadn't thought about of what could go wrong and what, you know, I know that Elon and and Max and and Peter were very like, we're going to build the next financial uh, powerhouse because the banks are so old-fashioned and they're so outdated. And that's exactly what they did. But obviously, they didn't know about all the kind of legal Um, things that can happen and I know that I said earlier about Ken Miller who worked on the anti fraud side of PayPal he said to me that that literally it felt like every I don't know few months there was something that could have absolutely killed the business and I know that fraud was a big thing that they obviously had to deal with and and pretty quickly one of my favorite bits in the book is um, Max Levchin who I think is fantastic and I followed him for a long time on Twitter but I don't know much of his personality and I didn't know much of his history so I enjoyed reading that And uh, he talks about, you know, there's a lot of fraudsters coming from Russia. And so he used to try and infiltrate these chat rooms where all these Russian hackers were to try and understand what they were trying to do. And uh, there is this quote that he said where he pretty much said that he was an in, uh, what was it, an impenetrable um, yeah, he
1: w- he wants to be the impenetrable
0: Russian. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's it. He said the rules of engagement are clear. They tried to steal, right. and I stopped them. And I just thought that's so <laughs> funny. This is why I can imagine this book actually becoming a film because there's so many little stories like that which really capture your attention and kind of bring you to that time um so fraud was one of the issues they had but obviously growth was another huge problem because like you said they didn't necessarily have the infrastructure for it so what was that what kind of led to this merger i i I know they came together and i know they didn't always agree and and when a merger was discussed i think uh, max had a problem with elon who was pretty much acting as though Confinity was like um, a lesser kind of company, as in like, we'll get the higher percentage, you'll get the lower percentage. And Max was like, screw this, you know, forget it. So how did the merger actually happen? It's
1: it's a great story. And I, I, I will say one thing, which is, and this is true for both, both parties, there's a tremendous amount of respect from Elon toward Confinity and toward toward Max and Peter because he rarely meets anyone who can move as fast when it comes to new technology as he can, so he is seeing them like update Confinity's product rapidly, and he's he even says to me, he said to me directly, he was like, "Whoa, respect! Like, uh, you know, if you can keep up with me, that that means something." So I don't want to make anyone think that there was a lack of respect. What I think, I, and on the other side, by the way, Peter and Max are scared of X.com. So with X.com, you have. A successful entrepreneur in Elon Musk, who has exited for three hundred million, you know, exited his last company with a sale to three for three hundred million dollars, that of which he nets a, a you know, decent portion. You have Sequoia Capital backing them, one of the premier venture capital firms in the world, uh, and you have an entity that feels like it knows what it's doing. It's got deals signed with Barclays, and it's got deals signed with banks at home. And they just, they feel more established. They've got financial services veterans on the roster. They've got real heft and weight. And, you know, for Peter and Max, they're like, look, we were just sort of, you know, we'd just gotten out of the gate. Like we didn't, I didn't really know. What Max says, I, it felt like we didn't really know what we were doing. there. So there's, sort of, there's a healthy respect on both sides. There is competitiveness for sure, because they're trying to win market share on eBay. Um, the merger proves a little, a little tricky because, you know, X.com had, had, was going to acquire Confinity as the majority owner and there were some words exchanged and a little bit of ego and things went sideways the merger was eventually stitched back together but it was never a perfect or or easy alliance even from the jump Uh, and I think by the way the part of the reason is not about personalities it's actually that the companies had very different visions for what they were going to do. X.com intended to be in every part of finance and to, as Elon put it to me, like be the world's financial system. Confinity, with its PayPal product, was much more focused on the narrow slice of financial services that is payments. It's not, you know, sort of, there are some differences in, in personality and a little bit of tension, but it's it's actually a con- conflict in, in founder vision. Um, and it, so it's a much more substantive debate than I think has often been portrayed, right? Um, Elon's vision was never that X.com would be like the biggest eBay payments provider in the world. He felt that they could take on the biggest banks in the world and the biggest insurance companies and mortgage companies in the world and do it all under one roof, make it much simpler and cheaper for customers, and that that was going to be the play. And I should say also, it's because his view of the internet then and now is that the internet can do that. like It can... Break down every barrier that if you were able to get internet everywhere, it actually fundamentally improves a lot of industries. Max is does not have a big exit; he is just out of school, whereas you know Elon's a few years older. So there is this uh, power asymmetry and kind of experience asymmetry. But the companies do end up merging under one banner, and thankfully they they merge r- and close a joint round of funding in March of 2000 that is a hundred million dollar round of funding right before the bottom drops out in Silicon Valley. And the mood suddenly changes from, you know, parties to panic. And so there's there's a timing element here that one person expressed in theological terms saying like, boy, you know, we really felt like we were like, like divinity had blessed us in this moment that we closed this round right before the bottom fell out. But I think that provides a bit of the texture on the two companies. They actually have different ambitions. They have different visions. It's just simply the case that Elon had always thought payments should be one piece of a much bigger thing we do, that the portfolio of what X.com offers is going to be huge and all-encompassing. And that for Confinity, which had started out doing mobile payments, the focus was, okay, we we have maybe mobile payments aren't going to work, but email payments are, let's focus on that.
0: And yeah, going back to what you were just saying just there about Elon having this vision that was... You know, humongous vision at the time, and especially for someone that hadn't worked in that sector. Um, but I think that you know is is a common thread throughout his career. Everything he does really is is stuff that is uncharted territory. Um, but I remember. Well, by the way, one
1: one thing on one thing on that is that you know he, it, it's it's fascinating. It's like one of the most enjoyable conversations was him describing how even today the mainframes and systems that run the financial system operate on this, like what he calls ancient code, right? Uh, and, and he's not wrong. Um, and, and there is something powerful about the idea that in spite of everything that he has going on in his life, and, and he had had one internship at a bank, he could see two things. One, that the internet was going to make it harder to justify the fees that financial institutions charge for everything they do, because the internet was going to make a lot of systems move faster and much more cheaply because you could transmit in bits what used to have to transmit through atoms, right? And that it wasn't going to cost as much. And the second thing that he could see was, boy, you're really going to need to upgrade the code that was written in like the 60s and 70s and 80s in these old institutions. He had that vision at a time when most Americans were signing on to the internet through dial-up internet. I think people underestimate the degree to which he's thought through the technological underpinnings. And, you know, he joked with me about the COBOL code that underlies a lot of the banking architecture in the world. And I I remember something like he's like, oh, I pity the people who have to maintain that code. Um, And it was just a really funny, it's not in the book, but it was really funny. He's like, I pity pity the poor people who have to maintain that code. Boy, that must be so hard, right? Because he's really thinking about it at that level, meaning the systems themselves need an upgrade.
0: I was going to ask you, actually, because I've heard you say before that you've got like hours and hours and hours of audio, obviously doing these interviews. Are you going to do anything with the bits that didn't make it in? Are you going to I I wondered if you could do even like a podcast series where you talk about, you know, the whole uh, PayPal story and include these snippets. Do you think you'll ever do that?
1: You know, I've thought about it. And and to be to be fair, I was talking to these people about a, a very narrow four year portion of their lives. So it wasn't like I was. Like, you know, I have time with them, but I'm not, I wasn't there to write a biography. I, you know, Ashley Vance had like 10 or some odd, 20 interviews with, with Elon, spent a lot of time with him. So I want to attach a disclaimer. I was there for four years and we talked very rigorously about those years. And, and, and I learned a lot. A lot of what I learned was through paper and through old emails and, you know, just browsing around the Internet Archive. Um, it's a really good question. I have a lot of audio. And it cuts across a lot of people, some people, some names people have heard of, some they never have. But I also, I always treated my interviews as conversations Mm. and it would feel a little funny to me to do anything too much, too big with them. Mostly because, you know, we would go down like random rabbit holes and and they would think out loud. And there's a way in which like, um, that maybe is better just for like my consumption as opposed to public consumption. But I, I also, I was very careful. So here's the thing, right? If you didn't have context for a certain clip of audio, let's say that I had with Reed Hoffman, there was no context. And I got you to like minute 36 of an interview. You might think something that he said, like makes no sense. Yeah. Except that if you didn't have like the first 35 minutes, and if you hadn't read like everything that I had read in advance of it, mm. you know, you might miss something. That's why in the book, what I often do is I try to dial the lens out and sort of like take, okay, like let's take a step back. So for example you know Elon has this critique of banking so i went back and looked at like what the how the wells fargo website worked in 1994 and i found this amazing document that showed that you know they had they had put up a website but because they had used really big images and people had really slow dial up internet it took a really long time to load up the website right and you actually couldn't do anything on it there was like promises made of future services but there was no actual service provision i tried to provide context so that i wasn't just getting their account of things but was always trying to think about Okay, how does somebody see this? So for example, I would go on these old message boards where users were just savaging PayPal for like, they didn't give me my money. I didn't get my check. These people are a scam. So I always tried to provide some context. Mm -hmm. And I think some of that context would be lost if you just listen to the audio.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think that was the other thing about the book. There is so much context. I really feel like I went back in time and, and, you know, was around at the time it was going. And I do remember PayPal. And I do remember like one of their great marketing ploys was to give you, I think, you know, for us, it was five pounds or 10 pounds to to get you going on it. And everyone did join up. So I guess that was one of their clever marketing um, ploys. But a few more questions before we go. I wanted to ask you about there's a particular point in the book, which I I didn't even know about, but Elon had become CEO, uh, Peter Thiel had stepped down, Uh, somebody called Bill Harris, who had been CEO, he'd been ousted, and Elon becomes CEO. Uh, But then it wasn't too much longer, he was going on honeymoon, which obviously should be a joyous occasion. And for someone like him, who's working around the clock, this was rare that he took time off. And he got ousted and he found out about it and he wrote a letter to the team and he said that he was so sad that words actually failed him. And he commented on the fact that he had given every last ounce of effort and that um, the PayPal team were like his family. And I just wondered, like, we don't really hear about that side of Elon. We hear about, you know, in the press we hear certain sides about him and and how you know aggressive he is in, in getting things done and how he sets unrealistic unre- deadlines and you know he gets pulled apart a lot in the press i just wondered if you could talk about you know the more kind of human side of him and and how he felt about paypal and what it meant when he was ousted
1: yeah it's um it's really perceptive you picked up on that cuz i it's something that in the course of kind of learning about him and talking to the people around him was was evident but is harder i think when you're transmitting some things through through twitter and people can misinterpret this and that and the other you know it's almost it's almost tough to describe but i would begin with the following which is he cares so much about the companies that he builds and works on. And and I I don't say that lightly. I mean, invests mind, body, and soul and has for now decades, right? I wonder if it's even possible to describe the level of commitment. But there was a really interesting essay from a writer and, and obviously a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, but this was in his capacity doing his blog. Sam Altman wrote this piece where And I'd have to dig it up. But he had this piece where he he talked about walking around with Elon at at the SpaceX factory floor or something and looking into his eyes and seeing him explain what the vision was. And Sam says something like, this is what conviction looks like. Right. Um, So I would say that there's nothing that Elon has built in his life, certainly in the period that I was studying, where he didn't give of himself entirely and he he is ousted it's a it's a disagreement about again a founder vision disagreement it's a difference of opinion around naming and branding as well as technological architecture he is on his honeymoon Um, the, the document I had just come across was a, an exchange to a small group of people that were close to him and that he had recruited where he was describing how painful it was. And I think it's really easy to look at someone like him and discount the humanity in his life and in the lives of all of these people, like they become caricatures. And I had maybe set out like to just dial that back a bit and, and explore, sort of how fundamentally human they are, right? And like where they began, because now you can't, you just, you, it's almost like they become brands, right? They become these like antiseptic things, right? Where everyone projects onto them the thing that they want. But you, you do forget that there's pain and loss and real difficulty that they've all experienced in different ways. And I didn't want to make that too overwrought, right? Like, but I did want to explore it in this context because he is pushed out of this company. And I think for many of us, A job is a job, you you do it. I don't think that particularly um, for Elon, there are others in the story who operate this way as well, but particularly for him, I I think there's a sense of a calling. Like he he believes that the work he's doing is what he, that there's a mission driven part of it. And I had employees, by the way, this isn't me guessing. I had other employees I interviewed say that what was compelling about joining X.com was they didn't feel like they were joining a financial services company. They thought they were going to be at the vanguard of a revolution in finance. And that concept was pitched to them and with real conviction by their boss or would-be boss, Elon Musk. And so I, I think that's something that's easily lost is this, this unbelievable level of commitment. And I think that that is matched with you know, that kind of commitment, I think, by definition, engenders emotion uh, and really powerful emotion. I'm reading a, a book right now about the, the pre-war days in England and it's a description of, of Churchill and the kind of people he had around him at the time. And you see this in him too, right? That there's this outsized commitment and there's a kind of the corollary of the cousin is, you know, he's able to, he weeps all the time, right? He, he, he is intensely, so intensely committed that when there's a setback it, it, it is, it pains him personally. I, again, I'm, I'm thinking out loud a little, but, but I do feel like there is something about the investment, the personal conviction and investment that he makes in what he creates that is qualitatively different from let's say someone who's recruited by a board to be a CEO right um, it is why in the middle of my first my longest interview with him uh, he had talked about how founders he'd meditated on the idea of, of a founder what is it to be a founder and he has this little soliloquy about a founder is a creative force and I think you know again he's I'm sort of, I had put him in the position of having to reflect on himself. Right. But there, there is something about that commitment that I am glad it shined through. It was a painful moment. Now what's even more powerful is that it isn't long after this moment that he picks himself up and starts to build what becomes SpaceX. Um, so the, the truly remarkable thing I think is the end of chapter 14, when this person has gone through so much in these years and it- It's just okay. I have what I want to do. I'm going to go do it. And there's a level of just intense conviction around that that I found, you know, um, certainly worth sharing with the reader. It's why the last page on that chapter ends uh, in Omalek Island, just off the coast of Hawaii. It's a truly powerful moment because remember, at that time, if he wanted to hang it up, if he wanted to retire on a beach, he could have, uh, you know, X.com was sufficiently well long. He could have said, I'm done with, you know, a palace coups and the, the hurly burly of a startup, but, but he commits to his next venture almost right away. Let me make one other point. I realize I'm going on at length, but it's a pretty powerful moment. In many places that this story has been written, the people who hosted Elon are given the floor. Most of chapter 14, I give over to the people who Elon recruited who thought very highly of him. We're very disappointed by what had happened. Today are counted as among some of the like leading lights in Silicon Valley. What I think people miss about this period is that one of Elon's contributions is finding talent and then just being relentless about pulling them into his orbit. So one of the people he hires, Roloff Botha, is basically fresh out of business school. Elon has to make multiple attempts to recruit Roloff Botha to join X.com. And today, Roloff obviously runs Sequoia Capital, right? Again and again, I found this, and Eric Berger, by the way, who wrote the book on SpaceX, also found this. That one of the things about uh, Elon's leadership is as a sort of like uh, he just when he finds talent, he he just works hard out to recruit. And the people that he recruited at X.com at that time, I felt like never many of them never got to share how upset or frustrated or disappointed they were. Um, but again and again, I heard from them. They said, you know, look, it was. They were excited about the company's future. They were disappointed that Elon was no longer going to be CEO and they had to reconcile those two things.
0: Thank you for sharing that. I do think it's important. And that's one of the things, the overriding thing about your book is that you share these human side of founders that, like we've said before, are often portrayed in the press and and people believe that's what they're actually like. So I appreciate it. Um, Obviously, the company does extremely well, Um, unfortunately, after he's gone. Um, Elon, Elon moves on very quickly and, and does have huge success, as we know, and, and most of the other kind of founders. And we haven't talked yet about a lot of the people that worked at PayPal that went on even to found um, YouTube. There's just so many. Um, but one of the things that's important is that obviously they did have a successful IPO and they were acquired by eBay for I think it was $1.5 um so it's a huge success story and even though there's loads of times where they thought that literally the company was going to die they rose from the ashes and and obviously went on to be huge successes as as people as well as uh, the company um I'm conscious of time so I just ask a couple more questions one is I felt you captured the early days of kind of a fast growing startup which could have easily so so easily failed and instead it innovated in many different areas Um, one of the quotes early on I think it was from David Sachs was it was hard and we succeeded which I thought was a great um, line which could just you know cover the whole story really but I want to just bring in there was an interesting thing that I wasn't expecting at the end of the book where you tell the you tell the story of Chris uh, Wilson and Stephen Edwards and I was trying to think like when you started telling the story I was thinking what what (laughs) what? <laughs> like, where, is he, where is he going with this? Is, Why yeah, am I in Baltimore
1: in a prison? Yeah, I was
0: thinking, <laughs> I, I think this is for another book. So I just wanted to ask you, like, can you tell me a bit about that story and how it relates to PayPal?
1: I, I I'm glad it threw you for a loop. I actually did. I wanted to throw people for a loop. I was hoping it ended in a different place um, than where it started. So they have this big success, as you mentioned. And in a, within a few years, by 2007, this moniker has been attached to some people in this group. It's the PayPal mafia. And famously, there's a Fortune magazine, famously or infamously, depending on who you are, uh, there's a Fortune magazine cover shoot where this photo is, they they style 13 or so of the people as mafiosos, it's on the cover. There's a big, big story within Fortune magazine. This story cements a certain kind of interpretation of a few of the people in the story. As I point out in the book, it's not representative. And frankly, like it leaves out hundreds of people who actually built the company. There are some people who have misgivings about the whole motif, the setup everything. And I, I try to document those as well. What the magazine cover, where the magazine does um, find an unexpected place is in a Baltimore prison in Jessup, Maryland. Um, So here's the reason I, I did this in some ways. I had seen mentions of the PayPal mafia in different settings abroad and in the United States. People would always say like, well, could there be a Google mafia or could there be a this mafia, that mafia? You know, in East, in, uh, in Kenya, there was like, the, this one person said, we're, we're after the success of Kopo we're trying to build a PayPal mafia of East Africa, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have startup ventures around the world where people emerge from those having succeeded and say like, well, how do we build a mafia? What's the playbook? And so I, I had enough of those. I'd collected a lot of those. I thought maybe the ending of the book would riff on that, this concept of the group But then I had met years before I started this project, a gentleman named Chris Wilson, who uh, was convicted at age 16 for murder and spent over a decade behind bars before being released at 33. He had turned his life around in prison. He had learned multiple languages. He had earned two degrees, I think. He had built a small business within the prison that was donating all of its books back to prison welfare fund. He had read hundreds of books. Chris is one of the best read people I know. Um, He'd learned Mandarin. He'd learned several languages actually. And he had shown that he had improved his life and paid his dues to society. And uh, a judge granted, you know, paroled him and then he was able to be released. Um, I connected with Chris just through mutual friends. And what I didn't know about Chris is that inside this prison, inside the Patuxent Institution in Jessup, Maryland, Chris Wilson and his cellmate, Stephen Edwards, were actually amateur experts on the PayPal story. So all the articles that I had read about PayPal, they had read too, because Stephen's family had gotten him a bunch of subscriptions to business magazines, and they became obsessed they became obsessed with the mafia cover photo. They put it up on their prison wall. Then they assembled a packet of all the articles they could find and used it as like a guidebook for a course they taught inside the prison about the PayPal years. And like, I was, I was, I, I was scratching my head. I was like, there's no way, you know, there's just no way, but it all proved true. They became obsessed with the idea that a small network of people who had nothing, who started with nothing, including many immigrants who had nothing, could go on to achieve such great things in the world of technology. This was particularly true for Steven because he actually learned to write code. He wrote code on pads of paper inside the prison and then eventually they gave him access to a computer and he became essentially like the systems administrator for this Mm -hmm. prison. They both were released. They had both built these incredible lives. But I, I was just, look, you know, there's any number of icons they could have had on their wall. And I just thought it was like the most incongruous thing that they would have picked this like group of, you know, sort of nerdy Silicon Valley types, right? Are the people who are like the inspir- the icon inside a prison. I thought it was, I thought at first I was like, there's got to be something to this that's just facile. Like maybe they found it and they thought that's cool. Okay. But no, actually, Stephen and Chris had studied this story. They had written this story almost before I did. <laughs> And part of what moved me about it is a line that Stephen gave me, where he said, "Look, when you're released from prison, what people expect is that you're going you're not going to be like the rest of us. You might get a job at McDonald's. We might give you a couple of handouts, but don't expect that you're going you're there's a ceiling on your success now because you were incarcerated." And he said to me, "Business is the only place where there's no ceiling on your success where and he would sort of describe it. He said, you can earn the products and services you build and create are the only ceiling on your success. So if you provide good products and services, you can succeed. Both of them have become business owners and, and operators. Uh, Chris has gone on to a life as an artist. He published a book. He's been on national television. Steven's startup, uh, Stephen has a patent to his name now. I found the story so interesting and I found their absorption with the PayPal years just so incongruous. That I felt like I, I had to end it this way. There was no other way to end this story because I think it reminds people that there is something about this, about, about the kind of entrepreneurial bug that cuts across cultures, that cuts across everything. And for it to inspire you know, two young men in a, in a prison speaks to that more powerfully than anything I could have written.
0: Honestly, it was an, an amazing ending as the book was amazing. I'm curious, last question, would you or are you able to get them in touch with Elon and Peter and Matt? Like, is there a way to bring those people together?
1: Yeah, you know,
0: <laughs> you it's, must a, do it.
1: it's a really good question. You know, I talked to Chris a lot and it is on his list for this year. The things he'd like to do is, uh, is meet some of them. Um, I, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure I could do it. I also birds of a feather flock together. I think they will find a way to meet whether mm-hmm. I intervene or not. Um, because I will say that the interesting thing about interviewing Peter Thiel or Max Levchin, and then interviewing Chris Wilson and Steven Edwards is that for all of their the differences in their life, the the instinct around hustle, around creativity, around building things is entirely the same. And I would say that's true for any of the people that are in this story. What is so interesting about spending time with them is that instinct is there. And only because I'm an outsider, I can sort of see it where I see just the way they interact with each other. I suspect that Chris and Steven won't need help from me to get to them, but I will, I will do my best to try to make, to try to square the circle, especially now that I'm out of the book and I can return to my normal civilian life.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I really appreciate it. I think that the book is brilliant and it's incredibly inspiring and I think that anyone that reads it will get a full understanding of not only what took place but what can take place in the future thank you I really appreciate it
1: thank you Danielle this was great fun
0: thank you so much for listening to my interview with Jimmy Sony, and for coming on the PayPal journey with us Jimmy's book is out now and it's a fantastic read In the same vein as this podcast, I like to think that Jimmy shares the incredible PayPal story in order to document the legacy of all those involved in shaping our industry, but also to inspire people like Chris and Stephen, who he mentions at the end of the interview, to build their own pioneering legacy. At the very end of the book, Jimmy dedicates it to his daughter, Venice, and there is something he says to her which really resonated, and I think it will resonate for anyone who's been involved in a startup. He says... Your life will be shaped by the things you create and the people you make them with. We tend to sweat the former. We don't worry enough about the latter. The story of PayPal isn't just about people banding together to shape a product. It's about how banding together shaped the people themselves. The founders and earliest employees of the company pushed and prodded and demanded better of one another. I hope you find people like that too and that you make things with them.